Welcome to the Revolutionary Love and Resilience Podcast Season 2. I'm Myra Holtzman. And I'm Shelby Lee. We are both trained psychotherapists who wear a few different hats working in the field of healing. Together, we focus on somatic-based and other leading-edge approaches to healing trauma. We're here igniting a revolution around embodiment, life after trauma, and nurturing resilience. We know that collaborating as colleagues and peers makes us stronger, wiser, and meaningfully connected. If you're a coach, therapist, care provider, or someone impacted by trauma, this podcast is for you. We believe in the body as an ally in the healing process and support the magic of helping nervous systems come back into balance. Join us as we offer an empowering and relationship-focused perspective to healing. This is a place where fierce and tender folks can come to get support and encouragement. We want you to know that we are right here with you on the path. So Shelby, I'd love to dive right in with you in today's podcast because I think that this is so juicy. And what I want to have a conversation about is pathologizing and how not to do it when we're working with our folks, how not to do it to ourselves and all things related to that. Yeah. Any thoughts, any things come up for you when I bring this up and then we can just riff together per usual? Yeah, I mean, just a lot of rage. (laughs) I feel immediate rage thinking about pathologizing, thinking about the DSM and, you know, oh, I just would like want to take the headphones off, like grab a foam baseball bat and just beat the crap out of something because it is like the worst thing ever that the system has done to so many people. And then we do to ourselves and each other. And I feel like most of what we're doing is undoing that when we're working together with clients. Absolutely. And I'm right there with you. I love that you named it right off the bat that there was rage. Because as we were talking about this subject and that we were going to do a podcast on it, like I could feel like heat and like my heart getting like a little, like my heart, like my chest getting a little bit tight and just a lot of energy coming into like my jaw and my neck and my shoulders. Pathologizing is honestly got to go. I think it is so old school, so not useful in any any particular way. And I have a lot to say about it. So do you want to start and then we'll just keep going with each other? Well, I was thinking you're so good at breaking down what things mean. What do you, what is pathologizing? How would you break that down? Oh, good question. So when I think about pathologizing in terms of working with clients, I think about all the ways that if I was doing that, I would be making my clients wrong or seeing them in a negative light. That's probably the most basic way that I would define it. Yeah. Let me think if there's anything else. And feel free to riff in, but that's when I think of pathologizing something, I just think of like this, I've got this microscope and I'm judging the fuck out of people and being like, you didn't do that right. And why didn't you just choose this? And you're supposed to be moving towards this direction. Like a lot of obligation about how you are supposed to live your life or how you're supposed to react to things is another way that I might talk about it. But it's generally a judgment of seeing my clients if I was doing this as just doing it wrong is Mm. the most basic way I might talk about it. Yeah. Which sucks. Nobody wants that. 
Yeah, I definitely, you know, the rage has moved through and I'm feeling sadness now, you know, thinking about how this happens and it makes sense that it happens. And when I think about pathologizing, what I think is that we don't take a step back to figure out what makes sense about what our clients are doing and how they're feeling. And instead we slap a label on it that's like, this is your problem. This is the problem that's happening. This is the problem that you are. This is the diagnosis that you are. It's not to say that diagnoses can't be helpful. They certainly have been for me at various points. However, what's underlying that is here's all the problems that make up your diagnosis that we need to fix and figure out. Exactly. And I think about what seems really popular in social media lately, especially in my feed, where I see people being like calling clients out on their bullshit. And I'm like, I don't see anything as bullshit. I don't see this as shit we're dealing with. I don't see this as something wrong with you, something wrong that's happening. I see everything working really well, actually, and exactly how you learned how to do it in order to survive. And so I look at my clients as what is happening? How did all of these behaviors that may not be working so well anymore get formed out of a necessity and how can it how does it make sense to me that you're operating the way that you're operating and feel the way you're feeling and i think the worst thing in the world i could do is point my finger and say oh we need to fix this this is what happened this is wrong you know so that's pathologizing to me yeah i don't know if i've ever said this to you but one of the things i'm really committing to is continuing to not do this as a way, as like the new path ahead, not the new path, but like the way that I think anyone who's in the healing field needs to approach working with clients is in a really non-pathological relational way. And the problem with pathologizing that I also think is the biggest problem and I also think is really systemic is that If I'm pathologizing my clients, that puts me in the seat of expert and it puts them in the seat of not expert or not knowing about themselves. And I think that's just as fucked up as it's going to get. Because what's true is that while I'm really well trained and I understand a lot of nuanced things that maybe my client doesn't know about, my clients are the experts in themselves. And it's my job to support them in continuing to be as authentically expressed as they can And related to what pathologizing brings, which is a shit ton of shame for the client, right? If I'm saying, you've got this problem, I'm the expert, I know better. All that that does is deter or slow down the client's healing process. And I just wanted to name that because you said in a previous episode, you talked about feeling with your client as a way to stay grounded and working with them. And feeling with is a lot different than judging against. And that just seems to... I am the expert in a certain way, but I don't want to be the expert in in telling someone how I think that they should live their life because that's not really what this is about, right? So I just, if there's anything you want to say about that, but that's for me. Oh, the other thing about that too is that if I don't have to be the expert, if I'm, if I'm taking a non-pathological relational model, then one of the benefits that I get is that it relieves me of the duty of having to know every fucking thing of having to know what intervention to use, what theory, what thing that I need to say. And so there's something about being in the role of expert in a way that's collaborative with clients that I think is really, really important and has to be the new pathway moving forward 
because the truth about mental health in general, and I'm kind of on a soapbox, is that like we're going to need it. Like people need mental health support throughout, like especially with the times that we're in and everything that's happening socially and, and culturally. So I just feel really emphatic about that. Like it's, you know, the sort of distillation of that is, you know, if I, if I could make my client the expert on them and trust that whatever it is that they're doing is helping them to survive and probably help them to survive much, gnar- you know, like gnarly shit that happened when they were younger. And I just get to be the expert in supporting them and, and weaving in my own expertise with theirs. Imagine what we could actually build together. And I, I see that as like collaborative and necessary. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, I got so many goosebumps as you were talking. We're so on the same page. I just feel really excited to hear you articulate that. Everything from the client being the expert on themselves, that collaboration is key. And one thing that I just really want to emphasize is if we are orienting towards our client, looking for problems to fix because we don't want to be put out of a job, that is really problematic. And I think a lot of people, especially newer clinicians, well, actually, and quite old ones, <laughs> really, yes. they they believe that that's their job. Like, I, in order to be a coach or a therapist or a care provider, I am here to help people fix problems. So how am I going to orienting orient towards people? I'm going to be looking through this lens of what's wrong. Guess who's going to be feeling that? The client. There right. is something wrong with me. And it's just going to get re-perpetuated. So when yeah. I can remember that I'm not here to fix anything or figure anything out or be the expert on anything, oh my God, you can first of all stop writing all those Facebook posts about things that you're experts on and remember <laughs> that <laughs> the only job here is to stay resource, regulated, present, really deeply curious and genuinely caring. Everything will change. Everything. Change is the wrong word because I don't believe we're here to change anything, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. Mm-hmm. the What is possible when we're here to really just be with what is instead of look for what's wrong and what's to fix is that we have this whole being emerge in front of us and we're this safe, yes. safe-ish, safer container safer for them to feel received by. And I just feel like crying saying that because the discomfort that it is that we have to go through, at least I did, to stop trying to figure out how I can be this person that has all the answers to all of the problems, to put my ego aside, to just start trusting that I can just be and that's more than enough. It's a lot of discomfort and it's a lot of mental messages. But Mm -hmm. the reality is for me, That's what's given me all my energy back, my aliveness back in working and seeing my clients just come to life. Absolutely. I'm totally with you on that. So I want to talk about this one particular thing. I don't use diagnoses in my practice unless people need a super bill, but the borderline personality disorder diagnosis. So you and I met at, you know, the somatic resilience and regulation training And one of the things that I got from that training that was so helpful for me as a clinician was framing this diagnosis of borderline personality disorder as unhealed developmental trauma. And 
there's just something about that that feels important to name. I have a client whom I just adore, and she had been going through treatment and she had gone to a treatment center and she had just, she was doing all of these things to support her in getting back on track. And somewhere along the way, she uh, was told that she was subclinical for borderline personality disorder or something like that. And so she did a bunch of research on it and it became a badge of shame for her. And I was this literally the sole voice in, in a field of practitioners who she had been working with or centers that she had gone to to get support that were giving her this diagnosis that was then became a really shameful thing. And I was the only one saying, listen, you can use that if you want. But the truth of the matter is, is that what we're really dealing with is not so much about a personality disorder, but more about the fact that you have early trauma that you experience some really deep neglect. And interestingly, she kept wanting to use that with me. And I was, you know, I kept sort of gently and lovingly pushing back on her about that. And I think maybe a few months later, she ended up seeing the wisdom and being able to let go of this thing because she was continuing to apply this diagnosis to herself and I'm sure that you've had this experience, but in my experience, we've been trained from graduate school to not want to work with borderline personality disorder. You know, this is where clinicians start to eye roll and be like, yep, she's just being super borderline-y. And it becomes this way that we're pathologizing them. And the problem with pathologizing in general, not so much about BPD, is that it really gets in the way of you being fully present. And you said something like deeply curious earlier with our client, because if that's the lens that you're carrying, whether it's about borderline personality disorder or just in general, like, oh, they've got this and they've got that and they keep, I don't know, keep regressing back into their addiction. It, In my opinion, it doesn't really allow you to connect with the person. It only allows you to connect with what's wrong with them and their diagnosis. Mm. Is this making sense? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I feel really passionate about that I think is non-pathologizing as well, especially around borderline personality disorder, is that I think I, I think I can describe this, but we're pathologizing it even in this moment, you know? And like I wish people could have the understanding of borderline personality disorder and understand like, oh my goodness, it's a whole spectrum. There are so many people who actually either have borderline personality disorder, have PTSD with features of borderline personality, they're borderline, you know, and various aspects of it. And to go, oh my goodness, some of the most brilliant people I know and the most, the deepest feelers I know. And this is not a death sentence, but we we use this particular diagnosis to like call people crazy, distance ourselves from them, shame them. And wow, have I ever had so many experiences in my life where I have felt as though I may be someone who experiences borderline. If we had a, a map of borderline personality disorder where it was kind of treated like of course you do. This comes from developmental trauma. How could you not be experiencing reactivity like this? How could you not be experiencing abandonment like this? You are still so lovable. Of course you're reacting, responding, feeling the way you are instead of 
oh my goodness, if you're experiencing any or displaying any traits of this, do not tell anyone because they will no longer want to treat you, be friends with you, uh, interact with you, be your colleague. Yep. It's just horrifying to me what's been done um, with all personality disorders, but especially this one. People speak about it so flippantly. And I really so think flippantly. there's a whole spectrum and so much developmental trauma that is not getting cared for because people have so much shame. They don't even want to let people know the magnitude of how messed up they feel inside because they will get alienated. And it's yeah. just so sad to me. Not to mention all of the other DSM diagnoses that are clearly, from my perspective, related to developmental trauma. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. so sad to me how people just walk around with these diagnoses and don't get held with the kindness and compassion that they need around what happened to them and what they learned how to do. Yeah, I love everything that you just said. I'm wondering what you think about this statement, because I also really believe strongly in this. So, you know, the DSM is our Diagnostic and Statistic Manual that we use as clinicians to provide diagnoses so that insurance companies can basically, like, reimburse us or reimburse the client. And one of the biggest problems, I think, around pathologizing is that the standard of, in terms of, like, the yardstick about what makes a person healthy or not is predicated, it's built on white men treating white men. So there's this thing where the, well, I'm a little bit lost right here, but there's something about that that just chaps my ass when I think about (laughs) that, that the standard, because I'm a woman of color, and so, and you're a woman, and to be compared to this standard that was built, I don't know, however long ago that the DSM was built and was created, just feels really unfair. And it's mainly unfair for the client. It's mainly unfair for the client who has some kind of diagnosis like borderline personality disorder where people just want to write them off or where clinicians are just sort of resigned, like, yeah, they're just never going to get better. Like, this is just how it's always going to be. So what do you think about that comment about, you know, the yardstick being white men in the field of psychology? And that's, and anyone who doesn't fit that then becomes wrong or pathologized. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. We are in a patriarchal culture, no matter what gender we are. And especially as licensed psychotherapists get stuck into this bureaucratic system that turns human beings into objects that we need to put into categories in order for anyone to make sense of anything. And For me, that goes against my whole nature. You know, it's like, that is not how I want to relate to people. It doesn't feel good in my body. It doesn't feel good in my heart. And But it makes sense that it was developed that way because most things in our Western culture have been. And so I think that's part of the rage I feel. I think that's a big part Mm. of the rage I feel is that I don't Mm -hmm. want people to be treated like this. To slap a diagnosis on someone in the first three sessions that's going to last for the rest of their life that insurance companies can track, like that pisses me off. I want them to be able to have a diagnosis or not according to what feels empowering to them, not shame-inducing. Yes to that. I love that. So I'm really curious, what would you envision 
like, what would you love to have happen in the experience of care providers and your experience as a therapist around pathologizing or not pathologizing? Yeah. So the place that I generally tend to start with clients taking a non-pathological, more relational and empowered model is helping them to identify the genius in their survival-based behaviors, even if they're considered bad or wrong, like addiction or eating disorders or something like that. And what I have noticed is that when I can start to join the client in validating their behaviors, not approving because those are different, not that I'm here to approve or disapprove. That's not really my role. I think that's part of the whole pathological model, but helping them to really identify these are things that I needed to do in order to survive what I had to survive. As soon as clients get wind of that, the shame starts to decrease almost immediately. And so that's one thing that's been really helpful for me in working with clients. And also from my own seat of being the therapist in the room, not always, a lot of times, not always answering the questions. And what I mean by that is people often want to be told what to do, right? Like, well, how do I make this better? And I certainly can help them, right? And there is a fair amount of support and helping them learn skills and that kind of thing that I think is really helpful. But basically turning the tables and saying, if you feel into your body, what's the best choice for you given what you know right now? And basically handing it back to them, right? And for me, when I think about doing that, I think about reaching across the room and holding hands with them and being like, right, so what do you, what's your wisdom tell you? And then let's sort of go back and forth and that, you know, co-regulation kind of way. But there's something about handing them the reins and saying, what do you think that you need to do? And then the last thing I'll say, and this relates specifically to co-regulating touch work, and I'm curious what you think about this, but after clients have seen me for enough time or, you know, whatever, there's some inner knowing that I know and they're ready, I don't necessarily just show up and do, you know, the kidney, the kidney, the brainstem, the ankles, or, you know, whatever my protocol is. I start to invite clients to really listen into their own systems and ask them, like, is there anywhere that you're noticing in your own body that might want some contact today? And that that's a gradual process, but there's something that's been really important about that for clients to feel really empowered and to come back to their own expertise and wisdom in the room. Because I think that gets really lost, especially at the beginning of therapy for a lot of, a lot of folks. So that's how I start. Those are sort of like the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. You couldn't, I mean, I really couldn't say it better than better myself. You, we're on the same page. (laughs) And I think my orientation really is just starts from, I trust wholeheartedly that my client has everything they have in them, in their mind, body, heart, spirit connection. And that I'm here, you know, to provide some support, some connection, some presence, some love, you know, and I just know that they have everything they need in them. So being with them in the way that I am, hopefully, my biggest hope is that helps elicit that. I keep turning it back to them 
And just the way you described, you know, I can offer some skills, I can offer some tools, but I'm only going to offer them if it's a collaborative experience. I'm only going to offer them if I ask, would it be supportive to you? Check in about this. How would it feel to, you know, instead of just prescribing something for them? It's always going to be collaborative. And I just keep coming back to trusting even if something seems really out of control or really, really overwhelming, that there's a really important reason why that's happening. And it likely is historical, <laughs> you know? I was listening to Resma Manikam's book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, and he mentioned that phrase, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And I know so many people would love to pathologize hysterical moments, right? And for me, I so agree with that. I go, oh, I just get really curious. This feels like it's familiar. This has a long history. That doesn't mean we need to go and figure out exactly where and when and how and relive the whole thing, that we can just know, oh yeah, this is bigger than this moment and we can have compassion for that. I loved that you brought up Resma's comment because when I, I read that somewhere in my feed and I was like, oh, duh, yes, of course. If someone's having a big reaction and it looks like hysteria, hysteria, there is something so historical stored in their bodies and in their experiences that is coming out and is ready to be worked on. And yeah, that's all I have to say about this. I mean, I'm sure we'll have more conversations about the non-pathological model, but what I heard you say was collaboration and trust. And I think that as clinicians working in the field of trauma, that's a daily practice, right? How do I feel with, how do I work with and collaborate with my clients? And then how deeply can I trust that they have everything that they need and that their mind, body, and soul can provide? And I'm just going to, I'm going to hold the space and be fully present and compassionate so that their system and their own wisdom can come sprouting up and out so that they can do their healing work in ways that are really meaningful for them and not the ways that I think or another psychiatrist thinks that they should do it. It sounds just like if we can all do this more, clients will really know how to feel empowered within themselves because they've got this trusted, safe other that's going... I trust you. And this is often actually a comment that I say to clients a lot. You know, it's like, I trust you to really know how to navigate this. So let me know how it goes. Or I really trust that your system has gotten more resilient and that you're going to respond to this same trigger in a different way because, because you're going to. And I've seen you, you know, I've, you've told me about that. And so that's just one specific piece that I say to clients that I think is really helpful and also helpful for me in offloading the pressure to have to know everything is I trust you too, or I trust that you will. And I think it's just really helpful. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I just noticed my whole body just kind of soften my heart melt hearing that. And I can hear in your voice how much you mean it. And this yeah. just, to me, it feels like the most meaningful and special type of work. I'm grateful Absolutely. we get to be here talking about it. I know, me too. And I'm sure that this topic will come up again just as we start to wrap up. Um, I think it's a really important topic. And I think one can, that we need to continue talking about because I we can just get wrapped up in our own stuff and our own ideas of how we're supposed to be as clinicians and healers and people that are also trying to be healed. And yeah, I just want to really affirm the trust and collaboration piece. So thanks for bringing that to the conversation. 
Mm-hmm. And I am getting from this conversation that I want to just keep being more irreverent and opinionated because it feels really good just to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just do more of that. Expect more of that. I can't wait. Perfect. Thanks, Myra. Thanks, Shelby. Thank you so much for being a part of the show and being part of this love revolution. If you're feeling nourished and supported by this podcast, please share it with your people, subscribe so you're notified of all of our episodes, and leave a five-star review so we can get the word out. If you're a therapist, coach, or on your own healing journey and have themes you'd love to have us explore, send us an email at revolutionaryloveandresilience at gmail.com. You can find both of our offerings, everything from online courses to one-on-one sessions, by following our links in the show notes or searching our names online.